This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, I'm Douglas Everett. I've been so for 240 shows. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. We uh, cannot start today's program without uh, mentioning the unusual position we find ourselves in of having been a small part of the news this past week, at least a, um, a featured piece in Tuesday's Scene section of the Sacramento Bee. We're very pleased to have had uh, the Bee's fine media writer, Sam McManus, take an interest in what we do here at Radio Parallax. Mr. McManus is very methodical and very thorough, and he came down a couple weeks back to Lower Freeborn to see our operations down here at KDVS. Both Mr. McMillan and I are really very happy with the article, so we want to thank the Sacramento Bee for their interest. Some of our correspondents, however, feel that Mr. McManus probably should have included a couple of items that were omitted from the piece due to space considerations. Our contributor, Ed Vigilano, said we really should mention the fact that Mr. McMillan takes time to uh, translate ethnic slurs for the benefit of Cuban refugees. For my own part, I'm kind of sorry that Sam elected not to tell that story about the time I saved a village in the Amazon basin from attack by voracious army ants using only a hoe and a glass of water. And finally, our good friend Steve Alexander said he was kind of disappointed that Sam didn't mention the fact that I was, quote, an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. Anyway, not trying to nitpick, we thought we would just round things out a bit. Actually, of course, all those quotes came from a very funny essay by a man named Hugh Gallagher, who wrote those lines uh, as part of the admission process for NYU. And you've probably seen it in various emails. It's the one that starts, I'm a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. And if you haven't seen it, we recommend you find it. Anyway, again, we're very pleased uh, to see the attention given to us by the Bee, the excellent writing of Sam McManus, and uh, just the attention given to this community radio station, which is affiliated, of course, with UC Davis. Your, your pals here at KDVS 90.3 FM. All right, back to business. In our second segment today, we're going to have a very special interview. Author George Pendle who writes about science, art, and culture for the Times of London, is going to talk to us from his home in New York City about one of the most interesting characters we've ever heard about. We'll wager he's someone you've never heard about unless you caught our Insight program last May. As an aside, I would like to note that I've been privileged to take some of the greatest guests we've had here on Radio Parallax and re-interview them over at Capital Public Radio. This would be a good time to mention how appreciative we are of the help we've been given by Mr. Jeffrey Callison over at CPR. On today's program, we get a chance to take uh, Reverse Flow, a guest that I had over at KXJZ, and bring him here to the KDVS audience. George Pendle's uh, tale of uh, rocket scientist John Whiteside Parsons will, we think, hold your interest. George Pendle's book, Strange Angel, is one of the best reads I've had in years. Parsons was a self-educated rocket scientist who was one of the co-founders of Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, as well as Aerojet Corporation, which has been a player in the Sacramento region since the 1950s. But there's more to the story of Jack Parsons, quite a bit more. Parsons 
literally bridged the gap between science fiction and space technology while he was dabbling in satanic cults. He was a follower of the notorious Aleister Crowley and had his girlfriend stolen by future Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. This was not the average guy you find over in the engineering building. Do stay tuned for segment two. And now let's begin the program as we do every week with On This Day in History. On this date, January 11th in 1908, declaring that the ages had been at work on it and man can only mar it, U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt designates the mighty Grand Canyon a national monument. Roosevelt didn't specify how long he thought the ages were, but uh, we're going to come back to that one uh, a little bit later in the broadcast. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago that uh, the National Park Service is selling books in the Grand Canyon, implying that it was created in Noah's flood. (laughs) But we'll get back to that. On January 11, 1922, at Toronto General Hospital, 14-year-old Canadian Leonard Thompson becomes the first person to receive an experimental insulin injection as treatment for diabetes. And on February 11, 1964, for the first time, the U.S. Surgeon General gives an official warning that smoking cigarettes can be fatal. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. And then a good one to close with, one year before that, February 11, 1963, the Beatles released new hits, Tell Me Why and Please Please Me. Our quote of the day comes from Voltaire, who said, The art of medicine consists in amusing the patient while nature affects a cure. Our statistic of the day is that, according to CNN, only 11% of Americans support the idea of sending more U.S. troops to Iraq. Our quip of the day comes from Rabbi Bob Alper, who said, I was leaving a funeral home when a man approached me and said, Rabbi, your eulogy for my aunt was wonderful. She would have loved it. And to think, what a shame. She missed it by just two days. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for the pharmaceutical industry when the Food and Drug Administration approved the first prescription weight loss drug for the growing number of dogs whose owners feed them too many scraps and treats. Pfizer Inc. has now been cleared to market a drug called Slentrol for use in the estimated 5% of U.S. dogs that are obese. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, faced with the options of feeding your dog less or taking him for longer walks, Americans are opting to instead spend one to two dollars a day and give them a pill. Is this a great nation or what? <laughs> 
The Week magazine noted a few weeks back that it was a bad week for internet porn addicts. After a lawyer for Kevin Federline, Britney Spears' soon-to-be ex-husband, quashed rumors that Federline is trying to sell a sex tape of the couple. There is not a sex video of Kevin and Brittany in existence, said lawyer Mark Vincent Kaplan. And it was an ugly week, probably any of the last, I don't know, dozen weeks, for male intelligence, after a study indicated that men's visits to hospital emergency rooms decline significantly during major televised sporting events. They increase significantly when the game is over. And ladies and gentlemen, that last one is true. I have seen it so many times. And our survey of local media notes that uh, our opinion offered about uh, the goings-on regarding the National Park Service and the Grand Canyon Association. Well, uh, our views have been echoed by the editors of the Sacramento Bee. In the wake of this story about how in, uh, in bookstores in the Grand Canyon, uh, they're offering for sale a book that interprets the canyon from a biblical perspective and asks readers to understand how it fits into the flood of Noah. Editors of the Sacramento Bee suggested that Mary Bomar, the new National Park Service director, should send a message that programs and materials in national parks present the best scientific evidence and don't endorse any particular religious beliefs. The Bee noted that in August of 2003, when Joe Alston, Grand Canyon Park Superintendent, attempted to stop the sale of this creationist book within the park, he was overruled by headquarters in Washington. Rounding out this disgusting matter, there was an item in the Bites column of the Sacramento News and Review, which noted that uh, the group Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility was raising hell, said Bites, about a policy of the National Park Service where rangers and guides in Grand Canyon National Park are prohibited from telling visitors how old the canyon is. The column quotes Piers Executive Director Jeff Rutsch, as noting that in order to avoid offending religious fundamentalists, our National Park Service is under orders to suspend its belief in geology. I think we need that sound effect again, Mr. McMillan. Well, we agree with both newspapers and hope the right thing is done and think we better follow what happens to see if it is. Let's go to the mailbag. We had an email uh, last week from Oliver, which was somewhat surprising. We'd mentioned in the previous program that Mongolia had contributed 200 troops to the war effort in Iraq. And this marked the first time that Mongols had been in Baghdad since the invasion by Genghis Khan's grandson, Hulagu, in the year 1258. Oliver's letter said, Your parallax reference to returning Mongols lacked appropriate gravity to these ears. Now, here we were, thinking we had covered the Hulagu in Baghdad story better than just about anyone else. And we're being informed that we're doing a substandard job. 
So we clicked on the link that Oliver provided and discovered, well, he's got a point. There's an excellent article from the New Yorker, the issue of 2005, April 25th. And we recommend that uh, you find this article yourself. It's titled Invaders by Ian Frazier. It tells the story of the clash of Islamic culture with that of the invading Mongol army. You'll learn a lot about the history of Central Asia if you'll take the time to read it, and we hope you do. It's a long article, but we think we need to read you at least one little excerpt. In about the year 800, Baghdad had become the storied and romantic place it would forever be in popular imagination. Under enlightened poetry-loving caliphs like Harun al-Rashid, Baghdad attracted scholars from all the domains of Islam, in keeping with Muhammad's teaching that educated men are next to the angels and that, quote, the scholar's ink is more sacred than the blood of martyrs, unquote. We sometimes forget in the West that it was Islamic scholars who translated Greek works, rendering them into Arabic, in which they were preserved to eventually be translated into European languages several centuries later at the time of the Renaissance. This in a time when Christian churches in Europe were burning every Greek manuscript they could get their hands on. Anyway, thanks, Oliver. And speaking of Baghdad, uh, George W. Bush wants to send 21,000 fresh troops over to achieve victory without defining what victory is. Leading Democrats such as Barack Obama, Ted Kennedy, and John Murtha are saying they may not go along with this. Which truly shows quite a bit of spine, doesn't it? Knowing that the American public are against it 9 to 1. I guess they're feeling maybe it's safe to challenge the president now. But I could show my prowess be a lion, not a mouse, if I only had the nerve. And a question we're going to address in the weeks to come, hopefully with Chris Hedges of the New York Times, is why it is we're using so many mercenaries over in Iraq. These people like Blackwater, we call them contractors. Well, they take up arms, <laughs> and they're fighting a war for money. Last time we checked, that's the definition of a mercenary. What's really concerning me is the article in truthdig.com, posted December 31st by Chris Hedges, which asks how it is that the streets of American cities are being patrolled by mercenaries who are not answerable to the military and are not a police force. What is going on? You and I, the taxpayer, are paying for them in both foreign and domestic operations. Yes, domestically. Bulletproof vest-wearing, automatic weapons-toting, Blackwater mercenaries were patrolling the streets of New Orleans in the wake of Katrina last year. To quote from Hedges, Eric Prince, the secretive mega-millionaire right-wing Christian founder of Blackwater, the private security firm that has built a formidable mercenary force in Iraq, champions his company as a patriotic extension of the U.S. military. His employees, in an act as cynical as it is deceitful, take an oath of loyalty to the U.S. Constitution. These mercenary units in Iraq, including Blackwater, contain some 20,000 fighters. Notes Hedges, they unleash indiscriminate and wanton violence against unarmed Iraqis, have no accountability, and are beyond the reach of legitimate authority. Strong words. We hope in the weeks to come we will discuss them with Mr. Hedges on this program. In the meantime, we recommend you check out that article at www.truthdig.com. 
Let's close our segment with an item from the Utney Reader, the November-December 06 issue. The article was titled Media Maverick. The excerpts came from a book, The Best of I.F. Stone, edited by Carl Weber. Note of the editors, independent journalist I.F. Stone published the political newsletter I.F. Stone's Weekly from 1953 to 1971. He was a predecessor in kindred spirit of today's political bloggers. He published frequently, worked outside the media establishment, shunned the pretense of objectivity in favor of clearly opinionated writing, and prided himself on scooping the big news gathering operations. The best of I.F. Stone collects some of his finest essays, one of which I'd like to excerpt. Said I.F. Stone, writing in November of 1955, The main obstacle to the creation of a well-informed public is its own indifference. In every country with a free press, thoughtful papers which conscientiously try to cover the news lag behind the circulation of those which peddle sex and sensationalism. This is as true in Paris and London as in New York. The second obstacle is that most papers are owned by men who are not newspapermen themselves. Publishing is a business, not a Jeffersonian passion. And the main object is as much advertising revenue as possible. Thus it happens that between the attitude of the publishers and that of the public, most papers in this country print little news. And this, except for local coverage, is mostly canned, syndicated, and quick-frozen. The third obstacle is that this has always been, and is now more than ever, a conformist country. It doesn't take much deviation from Rotary Club norms in the average American community to get oneself set down as queer, radical, and unreliable. Against this background, it's easy to see why the average Washington correspondent is content to write what he is spoon-fed by the government's press officers especially since the press is largely Republican, and this is a Republican administration. There's little market for exposing the government. Why dig up a story which the desk back home will spike? Skipping a few paragraphs. The private dinner, the special briefing, are all devices for managing the news, as are the special organization of privileged citizens gathered in by the state and defense departments for those sessions at which highly confidential and one-sided information is ladled out to a flattered elite. I can testify that Washington is in many ways one of the easiest cities in the world to cover. The problem is the abundance of riches. It is true that the government, like every other government in the world, does its best to distort the news in its favor, but that only makes the job more interesting. Most of my colleagues agree with the government and write the accepted thing because that is what they believe. They are indeed, with honorable exceptions, as suspicious of nonconformists as any group in Kiwanis. Powerful words from I.F. Stone, and we're sorry to note that 51 years after he wrote them, they still resonate. In a moment, we'll go to New York City to speak with George Pendle about a man who dealt in both rocket science and black magic. Stay tuned. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.
We are back. As promised at the top of the hour, we're going to talk about uh, a very interesting individual with a very good guest. George Pendle writes about science, art, and culture for the Times of London, also the Sunday Times and the Financial Times. And he joins us now from New York City to talk about his book about a most curious character, John Whiteside's Parsons. The book is titled Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of a Rocket Scientist, John Whiteside's Parson. And we want to say welcome to Radio Parallax, George Pendle. Hello, Doug. About a year ago, I was uh, in Los Angeles, and a friend of mine was talking about the origins of JPL. I went on the web, looked up uh, the man it was reputedly named after, Jack Parsons, and I discovered your book. And I found it to be an absolutely marvelous read. You and I talked about it on uh, Insight last year over in Capital Public Radio. And we we'll be itching to bring you on to KDVS to share this experience with the KDVS listeners. Yeah, well, it would be my pleasure. How did you stumble upon this story, this, this very curious story about Jack Parsons? Well, Jack Parsons, uh, I first read about in a footnote in a uh, scientific textbook. It was really nothing more than a, a few lines, and it, it said that he had been uh, a maverick rocket scientist with uh, a rather curious personal life, and that he had died at a young age um, shortly after the Second World War. And uh, I thought that this is curious, you know, uh, why is this uh, man mentioned here? And as I looked into the story of Jack Parsons, I found this almost this Pandora's box, which I had opened uh, after finding his name in this footnote. And I'd found that rather than just being an eccentric rocket scientist, he had really been one of the, the godfathers of the American space program. Uh, not only had he been uh, a rocket scientist, he had also been uh, an occultist and the head of an occult group in Los Angeles during the 1930s and 40s. And on top of all that, he'd also been a, a science fiction icon, a, a great figure for, for the young and aspiring authors of the day, like Ray Bradbury and Robert Heinlein. And he had even appeared in some science fiction stories. Uh, so suddenly, from this very uh, you know, uh, small mention in a footnote in a rather dry scientific textbook, uh, I, I stumbled upon this incredible character. Well, in incredible indeed. Um, I think if you've grown up in America or in any way have followed the space program, one is familiar with the notion that... Uh, Science fiction writers, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, uh, just write, writers in general who have aspired to fantasy, have given scientists something to shoot for. And I think we all think of, of rocketry and, and space exploration as having some origins in writing. But until I read your book, I didn't realize how absolutely, literally true that was. <laughs> no, it's, it's very true. Although many scientists today try and uh, separate themselves or distance themselves from science fiction literature, uh, officially, uh, unofficially, uh, there's been a, a huge stream of, of, of scientists working for NASA and for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory who have all been huge science fiction fans. Uh, in particular, uh, the early days of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which uh, my subject, Jack Parsons, uh, uh, founded, uh, were all great fans of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. Uh, they, really, and they really took these stories as, as almost prophetic texts they, they really wanted to, to try and make them come true. And, and holding these books up as their scriptures almost, uh, you know, Parsons, you know, really wanted to make what Verne's had written on text, he wanted to make it actually happen. Uh, and and it, it's quite extraordinary how, how inspiring science fiction literature was uh, around the, the early decades of the 20th century. 
George, let's go back in time. I think living in an era where we have geosynchronous satellites and, and TV programs, cell phones, bouncing messages, uh, we just we take rocketry for granted. But if you take the clock back to like the 20s and 30s, rocketry did not have a very respectable image. <laughs> not at all. In fact, uh, leading on from, from the last question, rocketry was really only discussed in science fiction magazines and novels. It was seen as nothing more than a fantasy, something which teenagers would read about and dream about fighting aliens in some far-off galaxy. Uh, rockets were, were, were science fiction, and, and in the 20s, they were, they were treated with absolute disdain. Uh, a few brave souls, uh, like Robert Goddard, who was, who was really the, the founder of American rocketry, uh, had made great steps forward in making rockets you know, viable alternatives to, to travel. Uh, uh, the possibility of a rocket going into space was really uh, Goddard's uh, ideal, but he had been shunned by both the scientific uh, a- community and the public. Uh, no less an authority than the New York Times had described him as something of, of a lunatic, and he had been forced to take his uh, experiments into the deserts of New Mexico, where he became a, an almost a martyr to, to, to rocketry. Uh, and so it was with this vast kind of mass of public uh, you know, disapproval against rockets that uh, Jack Parsons, the subject of my book, uh, began his work, uh, really prompted only by, by the science fiction manuals. Now, like I say, no textbooks mentioned rocketry. In fact, uh, a textbook as late as 1936 uh, on astronomy said that rocketry was, was a fancy. Uh, no scientist really took it seriously. Well, I think a lot of people listening are saying, well, hey, what about the rocket's red glare from, from the American national anthem? Uh, they do go back to the ancient Chinese, but no one, no one was able to direct them as they, as they would see fit. Well, that's right. I mean, the rocket as a contraption, uh, you know, a cylinder propelled by the combustion of its contents, it is over a thousand years old. But over those thousand years, they were just proven to be incredibly hard to control. Uh, the Chinese uh, invented them around a thousand A.D., and uh, use them as weapons, but they were very dangerous and very hard to control weapons. Uh, over the centuries, armies had rocket battalions, and the uh, rocket's red glare, as mentioned in the Star Spangled Banner, uh, were the British rockets fired uh, against the Americans. But really, as artillery improved, the rockets were pushed to one side. Uh, rockets uh, weren't viable uh, as a weapon. They were too hard to control. They were too difficult to work out because they were literally controlled explosions. That's what they were. And, and this was much too difficult for, for most people to, uh, to deal with. So by the dawn of the 20th century, rockets had been entirely replaced uh, as weapons by, uh, by cannons and artillery guns. Let's fast forward then from uh, the bombing of Fort McHenry to 1935. At this point in time, rocketry is being tinkered with. I think the Germans are doing some work, Werner von Braun, people like that over, over in Europe. Robert Goddard has sort of uh, been shunned. He's, I guess by that point he's probably in New Mexico. But in Pasadena, California, a couple of 22-year-old kids decide, you know, we need to pursue this, and they go over to the Caltech campus to see if they can drum an interest. Tell us how this all came about. Jack Parsons uh, grew up in, in Pasadena, and he was a, a fan of science fiction, as I've said, and he was also a great tinkerer. He and his best friend, Ed Foreman, used to try and build rockets in their backyards and, uh, you know, were setting rockets off which would explode and anger all the residents of, uh, of the town. And they got to a certain stage in their experiments by conversing with various other enthusiasts around the world. Uh, they got to a stage where they needed some kind of scientific support. They needed 
backing, both financial and technical. And Jack Parsons and Ed Foreman, who really had little more than high school educations, decided that if they were going to get scientific backing, there was only one place they could go, and that was the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, the Caltech. They were brazen about it. They walked in the doors and they said, hey, is anybody working on rockets? <laughs> and of course, there was something of a, of a snicker when they mentioned this, but it so turned out that they were lucky. And, and that's really one of their great skills. They were lucky. And they happened upon uh, a young uh, graduate student named Frank Molina, who was 23 years old, who had been interested in rockets to a certain extent. He, he was wondering why no one else had really studied them. And the three of these you know, young men got together and they began working on rockets with, the, with Caltech's uh, consent, uh, albeit uh, begrudging consent. Um, they began working on rockets on campus. Now, this led to all sorts of uh, troubles because rockets being such uh, dangerous and uncontrollable uh, subjects were, were often uh, liable to explode. Um, and it gained them the nickname the Suicide Squad by <laughs> the members uh, of Caltech because every now and then, an explosion would rip across the Caltech campus. Uh, one of them would be seen covered in soot. And literally, it, it, was a, it, it, was, it would have been funny if it hadn't been so dangerous. And that's how it all started. You know, I, I can't resist uh, uh, taking a quote you used on the last uh, time we talked about this, about these early days. You referred to it as the Bugs Bunny approach. <laughs> right. It really was. It was very much, you know, set, you know, set fire to something and see what happens. And, and it really was that there were so many... Uh, near-death experiences from the three of them. Uh, and they were eventually joined by a, a few more enthusiasts who were just wondering who these crazy guys were. But uh, there were near-death experiences as bits of rockets flew past their heads, as they were thrown to the ground. And eventually the university authorities were so flabbergasted at what they were doing that they thrust them to the Arroyo Seco, a, a dry river valley which ran near the, the campus where they were allowed to continue their experiments and where the experiments only got louder and more dangerous. As I guess the ringleader to this, or the original impetus for this, comes from Jack Parsons, along with Ed Foreman, joined by Frank Molina. They, uh, I gather, start, start making the darn things work. They were literally working out of their own pockets. Uh, they didn't have much funding, although they did have uh, a slight uh, you know, backing from, from the university. Uh, the one person they did have on their side was the great genius of aerodynamics, Theodore von Kármán, who was an old professor who thought there might be something in this rocket malarkey. So with his backing and really working odd jobs while they could to get money for their experiments, they slowly and painstakingly worked their way forwards to operating rockets, to getting rockets which could fly in the air, which could power, which had thrust, which wouldn't blow up. And as they began to become more successful, the authorities in Caltech and the authorities elsewhere in the government started to look at them uh, less with contempt and more with, like, what can these guys do for us? I guess if you go to Pasadena today, the site of that experiment is the current campus of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, there's even a, a small plaque on the ground, I mean, very small, um, as if they were almost ashamed of their past, but showing the exact first uh, place where their first rocket experiment in the River Valley took place. And now you take a look at the campus and it's sprawling for miles. It's a vast, incredibly expensive affair. But really, to begin with, it was just a few tin cans, some sandbags, and a couple of trenches to, into which to dive after the, you know, when the rocket blew up. I think it's inspiration for all of our listeners, of course, being on a university uh, uh, radio station here, that a trio of determined 22-year-olds can, can go far.
Quite. Uh, and imagine their surprise when they found that with the backing of the government, they, they soon began to, they were able to make bigger and bigger rockets. And they were able to even think about, you know, possibly, maybe possibly sending a man into outer space. Well, George, what starts out to be, you know, the, the suicide squad on the Caltech campus eventually becomes Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But not only do these, these early efforts found uh, what's today a great institution of rocketry, they also um, got into the commercial aspects of it, starting with someone asking, I guess it was von Karman, if they could find a way to assist heavy bombers getting off of small airfields. That's exactly right. Uh, when the authorities started to see the success of the early rocket uh, experiments, uh, they soon began to wonder how they could put them to use. The, America had just entered the war in 1941, and there was all talk of, uh, of aircraft carriers and of trying to get aircraft to t- take off from short runways on aircraft carriers. And the idea was to strap rockets beneath the wings of these planes and see if they can, you know, if it would help the airplanes take off. And this was the earliest experiment, uh, or the earliest government-funded experiment, on rockets in America. Uh, it saw the suicide squad uh, getting a small, uh, light aircraft and attaching some rather dangerous rockets under the wings, and then seeing, you know, allowing a very brave pilot to take off and firing the rockets as the plane took off. And the results, despite a few uh, upsets here and there and one rather uh, banged-about plane, uh, were successful. And with that... Uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory became a financial uh, entity. It became backed by the government. And, of course, these jet-assisted takeoff packs or JATO packs are just a standard, uh, standard item in, in warfare ever since. It's a huge step forward, uh, not only in, in helping planes take off from, from short distances, uh, but also uh, in rocketry. This was the, the time when America, as a country, started taking rocketry seriously. You also, I think, mentioned in the book how, uh, really, a lot of times it just comes down to one guy. In this case... Parsons was just tinkering away with a formula to make these, these jet packs work, and he was inspired by some, uh, some, some very old technology. Parsons had been having all sorts of trouble uh, getting the fuel to, to burn correctly. Instead of burning slowly and surely, the rockets had been burning all at once and exploding. And he was trying to work out how he could possibly make a, a less combustible, a less dangerous fuel for his rockets. And one day he was uh, walking uh, down a valley and he saw a house and the roof was being tarred over uh, with asphalt. And uh, he thought, my God, maybe, maybe I can use asphalt in my rockets. Now, this wasn't a crazy idea. He had always read in the classics of, a, of an ancient mixture uh, which the Byzantine Empire had used against its enemies called Greek fire. It was a weapon which was rumored to burn on water and was greatly feared for, for centuries across the Mediterranean for its dangerous kind of combustible properties. Now, there had been rumor, and Parsons himself had thought that maybe the mysterious element inside Greek fire had been asphalt. And using asphalt as the basis for his rockets, as the fuel for his rockets, he made uh, not only a powerful rocket engine, but also a stable one, which didn't explode. Uh, it, was, it was looking back to, to look forward, really. The book is titled Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons, and we're speaking with, with author George Pendle. George, it's an, it's an amazing story how a young man, inspired by science fiction, got a couple of great institutions off the ground, what became the Aerojet Corporation, what became Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. 
But I don't think we've even scratched the surface of this character, this individual who was Jack Parsons. Uh, if he'd been born later, he might have been a beatnik in the 50s or a hippie in the 60s. But back in the 30s and 40s, can you kind of paint a picture of just how off he was? Well, yes, it, it was almost as if his character was, was split down the middle between uh, a kind of scientific, uh, rational side and this other side, his personal side, the side which he, he tried, to, tried to invent himself as, uh, as an occultist, as a magician. He, uh, he was uh, absolutely fascinated by magic, and uh, he fell under the spell of an English occultist by the name of Alistair Crowley. Uh, now, Alistair Crowley was uh, many things. He was a poet. He was an experimenter with drugs. Uh, but his greatest claim to fame was as a founder of a religion uh, and of a, uh, an, an occult sect called the Ordo Templi Orientis. Now, Crowley had this idea that the best thing that man could do was to uh, do whatever he wanted. That was his creed. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, was Crowley's creed. And Parsons completely fell under the spell. I mean, as you said, he could have been a beatnik or a hippie, and he really was in the 30s doing things which people in the 60s were, were much more commonly doing. He, was, he joined this cult and worked his way up and slowly began this experimentation with magic to raising himself to a higher consciousness, to speaking with beings on another plane of existence. And so by day, while he was making rockets for the United States government, by night he was, you know, trawling through, you know, arcane scripts. He was doing magic rituals with, his, uh, with the fellow followers of this cult. Uh, it was quite an extraordinary split between uh, his scientific side and, and his occult side. So I gather that, as, as you mentioned in the book, as Aerojet proceeds, it gets purchased by General Tires, and they're going ahead full tilt with rockets. This, uh, this, this odd character was a little bit less welcome than he'd been previously. Nobody could deny that Parsons was, a, was really a genius. He was incredible. He was able to control explosions like no one else. He was like this uh, conductor of the orchestra of explosions. And nobody could deny his ability with, with chemicals. But his private life started to intrude upon his, uh, his, his work. And, you know, people started to complain that when he was doing his rocket experiments, he would stamp his feet on the ground and make pagan chants to pan. Uh, you know, people started to worry exactly what he was doing at home, why he always turned up late and with bags under his eyes, why he was always, you know, seducing secretaries back to his large home on, on, on this very plush street in, in Pasadena. And slowly but surely, the science which he created uh, of rocketry in the United States began to squeeze him out. He just wasn't the sort of character, although he had founded this science, he wasn't the sort of character that really you could rely on anymore. He was becoming much more interested in the occult, more so than even his rocketry. And those two things don't really go together at times. George, we have to address a couple of other characters that, uh, that have a role to play in this. In this milieu of rockets, uh, sort of having a salon of occult activity in his home in Pasadena, enters the future head of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, who basically steals Parsons' girlfriend. It's, it's one of those uh, strange occurrences. Parsons seemed to be at the hub of this wheel of characters and, and influences and sciences in Los Angeles. And one of these, the, the spokes going off this wheel, was the science fiction spoke. He was a great friend of 
science fiction writers, and they saw in him this handsome, young rocket scientist who they could write stories about. Now, at the time, L. Ron Hubbard, the future founder of Scientology, was a well-respected science fiction writer. He was renowned for his ability to write stories, you know, with thousands of word, words an hour. Um, and he was, Parsons was a great fan of his. And it, it turned out that they managed to meet up in Pasadena, and uh, they took to each other. Uh, this was in uh, the mid-40s, when Parsons was uh, about 30 years old, and Hubbard was about the same. Uh, they began living together in this big house. They used to throw story ideas back and forth between them for Hubbard's stories, and Parsons began to get Hubbard more and more interested in his personal life and his magic. So it turns out that uh, Parsons and Hubbard began doing magic experiments together, They trying to summon forces from the other side. Unfortunately, uh, Crowley, Alistair Crowley's uh, dictum that do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law applied more to Hubbard than to Parsons because <laughs> Hubbard just wanted to sleep with Parsons' girlfriend and, and Paul Parsons, being the leader of the cult and not allowed to be jealous or, or seeming to be weak in front of his friend, had to allow him to do it. So it turned out that, that this great friendship was eventually riven because, uh, because Hubbard ran away not only with Parsons' girlfriend, but also a rather large sum of Parsons' own money, which uh, was meant to go into a business investment, which went, uh, which went sour. Final irony, I think, is that um, at Caltech, one of the Chinese students they brought to help him in with their math uh, gets sort of caught up in the whole Cold War intrigues. He leaves in disgust and winds up becoming a man who builds ICBMs for the communist Chinese. Unfortunately, Parsons, along with many members of the, the original Suicide Squad, were swept up in uh, the McCarthy, or just before the McCarthy area of, of the anti-communist witch hunts. And uh, along with uh, Frank Molina uh, and Parsons himself, who had attended a few communist meetings before the war, uh, there was one student uh, named Xian, Su Xian, who was a brilliant, brilliant rocket scientist uh, and had worked with the Suicide Squad and made it you know, into the Jet Propulsion Laboratory alongside Parsons. But when he was accused of being a communist, he was eventually chased away to China, where he became a great friend of Chairman Mao, and one of the originators of, of the Chinese uh, rocket program. Uh, so it's uh, kind of rather ironic that some of the best geniuses, including Parsons, uh, were forgotten or pushed away uh, and never you know, were really celebrated in their own lifetime. Well, hopefully your book will correct that. Uh, I, do, I, do th I do see this coming to theaters someday, George. <laughs> it really needs to be made into a movie, particularly in the fact that, uh, I mean, you couldn't have a more dramatic end uh, uh, Jack Parsons basically dies in an explosion of his own creation. Yes, he really died the way he lived. Uh, nobody really knows quite what happened around his death. Some people say it was an accident while he was making rocket, uh, rocket powder. Uh, some people thought it was murder because of his communist links. And some people thought that he was merely trying to summon a homunculus from the other side uh, with which to practice his ritual magic. Uh, nobody is quite sure of what happened, but Parsons certainly probably died the way that he, he probably knew he always would, uh, in a kind of holocaust of flame. Well, he's a singularly interesting character, George, and we're glad that you took the time to write this book about him. And I also want to thank you personally for the fact that after reading it, I was inspired by this, this real link I was unaware of between sci-fi and, and science to, uh, to follow your lead and, and look up Ray Bradbury, and we got a wonderful interview out of Mr. Bradbury for this program as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, Ray Bradbury remembers meeting Parsons as a young boy, 
And, um, well, he's just one of the many people who, who Parsons touched on during his life. The book is titled Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons. George Pendle, we thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. talk a little bit about science, I think, in our third and final segment today. We enjoyed very much speaking with Dr. Phil Plate about his website, badastronomy.com, on last week's show. If you haven't done so yet, please do yourself a favor and go check out those top 10 astronomy photos of 2006. We're sure that uh, Phil Plate would enjoy the article in the December 2nd issue of, of New Scientist magazine, an interview with University of Central Florida's physics instructor Marcus Chown from the University of Central Florida about how Hollywood doesn't seem to get its physics right. To get students interested in the subject of physics, they decided to take some Hollywood movies and do some what-ifs and some calculations to see whether things would pan out the way Hollywood portrayed them. The magazine asked for an example, and Dr. Chown said, one of the films we use is Armageddon, one of the worst films ever made. An asteroid's on a collision course with the Earth, and NASA sends Bruce Willis to the rescue. He drills a hole in the asteroid and plants a nuclear bomb. Students then work out whether the whole scenario is realistic based on data presented in the movie. They estimate the asteroid's mass, then use a reasonable assumption about the size of the explosion. They estimate the deflections. Then, using a reasonable assumption about the size of the explosion, they estimate the deflection speed of the fragments. After doing the calculations, they discovered that what Bruce Willis would accomplish was to create two asteroid fragments that would hit the Earth about two city blocks apart. Chown noted one example where they got it right was in 2001, A Space Odyssey. In the movie, they portray a space station about 100 meters across uh, with a spin rate that, when you do the math, gives you an artificial gravity which turns out to be pretty close to 1G or the gravity you and I are experiencing right now. Chow noted that Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke were careful to get things absolutely right, but in a sentence that disturbs me greatly, he added, Unfortunately, students find the film impossible to watch because of its lack of dialogue. 2001, A Space Odyssey, impossible to watch? But at any rate, they close by asking, what's the best and worst movies as far as physics was concerned? Chow noted that Contact, based on the Carl Sagan book and starring Jodie Foster, is pretty good. It gets all sorts of stuff spot on, he said, including the physics of wormholes. On the other hand, the worst film was The Core, in which a U.S. military project stops the outer core of the Earth rotating. It has to be restarted with nuclear bombs. Said Chown, there isn't a minute in that film where the writers haven't rewritten the laws of physics. 
And we think we would do well to quote from an article in New Scientist, their December 16th issue, about something that was uh, that's probably not on any of our radar screens, but should be. Article by Bijal Traviti titled The Hard Smell suggests that next time you're out shopping and you suddenly find yourself overcome by the urge to splurge, stop and sniff the air. Why is that? Well, let's read from the article. The air in Samsung's flagship electronics store on the Upper West Side of Manhattan smells like honeydew melon. It's barely perceptible, but together with the soft, constantly morphing light scheme, the scent gives the store a blissfully relaxed, tropical feel. The fragrance you sniff is the company's signature scent, and it's being pumped out from hidden devices in the ceiling. This is not exactly new technology. I remember being in medical school and being given a tour of Disneyland by a friend who had worked there for years. We went into the bakery, and she said, notice how good it smells in here? I said, yeah. She goes, well, they don't bake anything on the premises. But the lovely vanilla smell that flooded your nose when you entered the room just made you want to buy some baked goods. Said Trevetti's article, you can expect more aromantic encounters as you browse. Scent, marketers say, is the final frontier in sensory branding. Of all our five senses, smell is thought to be the most closely linked to emotion because the brain's olfactory bulb, which detects odors, fast-tracks signals to the limbic system, which links emotions to memories. Retailers hope that making this direct link to our emotions may seduce us into choosing their products over a competitor's. Turns out there's about 20 companies out there that uh, specialize in marketing scents. And they're kind of hush-hush about it. Note of the article, one reason companies keep it secret is they want the association between scent and brand to form almost subconsciously. Many refuse to acknowledge that their stores are scented for fear of destroying the effect. Many of these retailers are fearful they'll be accused of subliminal marketing. So they don't want to admit they're manipulating the store environment to trigger an almost Pavlovian response in customers. Does that seem far-fetched? Well... We think the companies aren't stupid, and if studies showed that this didn't work, they sure as hell wouldn't be shelling out dough to make their showrooms smell nice. The article closed with, As more and more stores and hotels use ambient scents, remember that their goal is not just to make your experience more pleasant. They want to imprint a positive memory, influence your future feelings about particular brands, and ultimately forge an emotional link to you, and more importantly, your wallet. Let's talk a bit about uh, some other technologies out there. The New York Times reported last month that the amount of unsolicited junk email flooding inboxes has doubled from 2005. Marketers have developed new methods for bypassing spam filters. With image spam, words in the advertising are part of a picture, so telltale phrases such as penis enlargement are not detected. We reported last spring about an, uh, apparently a, a foreign Coast Guard agency that was systematically searching for documents that had shipping schedules and forwarding them to an email address in China. Well, the New York Times was reporting last week in an article by John Markoff that in their persistent quest to breach the Internet's defenses, the bad guys are honing their weapons and increasing their firepower. 
With growing sophistication, they're taking advantage of programs that secretly install themselves on thousands or even millions of personal computers, band these computers together into an unwitting army of zombies, then use the collective power of the Dragooned Network to commit Internet crime. These systems called botnets are being blamed for the huge spike in spam that bedeviled the Internet in recent months. Security researchers have been concerned about botnets for some time because they automate and amplify the effects of viruses and other malicious programs. According to the annual intelligence report of Message Labs, a New York-based computer security firm, more than 80% of all spam now originates from botnets. And in November, a single Internet service provider generated more than 1 billion spam e-messages in a 24-hour period. That indicated that machines of these service providers' customers had been woven into a giant network with a single control point using them to pump out spam. In the weeks to come, we'll try and have some specific recommendations uh, so that you, you don't wind up like Jerry Winkler, mentioned in the New York Times article, a sales representative in Denver, that said she turned off the network security software provided by her internet service provider because it slowed performance to a crawl on her PC which was running Windows 98. A few months back, four sheriff's deputies pounded on her apartment door to confiscate the PC, which they said was being used to order goods from Sears with a stolen credit card. The computer, it turned out, had been commandeered by an intruder who was using it remotely. And from the It's About Time file, if you've ever printed a document, only to find that the first page was blank or had like one line on it, and who hasn't done this? You will no doubt be relieved to note that software has now been designed to reduce the number of unnecessary pages printed, which should hopefully make offices a little less paper-hungry, as well as your home office. This software was developed by Green Print Technologies of Portland, Oregon. It deletes blank pages or those containing only an advertisement, web address, or legal blurb. And for our final item of the program from the miscellaneous file, we would note that in Cleveland, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last week inducted Van Halen. Yes, the good people in Cleveland decided to admit Patti Smith, R.E.M., and Van Halen to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Personally, we have a hard time even saying the name Van Halen without laughing. We find it pretty hard to dislike the uh, guitar licks of Eddie Van Halen. And in terms of lead vocalists uh, Sammy Hagar, or more importantly, David Lee Roth, well, it makes us nostalgic for the 90s. An era when Al Gore's wife, Tipper, was goading congressional committees into investigating things like rock lyrics and the video, Hot for Teacher. They were a pretty entertaining band, but they were equally famous for their off-stage antics, including the, <laughs> the celebrated writers inserted in their contracts that the M&Ms provided backstage had to have all of the brown ones removed. This inspired, among other things, that famous scene in This Is Spinal Tap. <laughs> you know the scene where Nigel, the guitarist, is talking to the band's manager, explaining how he, he just can't work out how to take the small square bread and mix it with the oversized round lunch meat. Anyway, 
We think you've just got to laugh thinking of this particular video, provided your name's not Tipper Gore. And again, this makes us a bit nostalgic for an era when Van Halen videos were considered among America's foremost problems. And we are out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. Our thanks today to author George Pendle. We think Strange Angel, the otherworldly life of rocket scientist John Whiteside Parsons, is one heck of a good read. You might want to check it out. On next week's program, we're going to have a talk with Benjamin Jonas Keeling. He's been producing Insight for Jeffrey Callison and, on occasion, yours truly, over at KXJZ for the past couple years, but he's taking a job in Washington, D.C., working for The Voice of America in an effort to bring uncensored news to the people of Iran. It's bound to be interesting, so tune in next week at the same time. As always, we encourage your emails. Please send them to info at radioparallax.com. Now, stay tuned for Todd. <laughs>